Welcome to the 79th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When Ridgeway Community School built a certified kitchen in 2009, it had the opportunity to prepare food on-site rather than having to rely on heat-and-serve meals brought in from 15 miles away. Having the ability to prepare food from scratch provided the school with another opportunity, a chance to source some of those meals from local farms. So during the 2009-2010 school year, the small Southeast Minnesota Charter School purchased food from some 10 local farmers who utilized sustainable methods such as certified organic, integrated pest management, and pasture production. Items such as potatoes, squash, cabbage, apples, strawberries, green beans, tomatoes, bison, and pork sausage were served to students a few times a week. The kids have given the food rave reviews, and food waste has been cut by around half. In addition, because more kids, as well as staff, were eating in the cafeteria during the school year, the school's food program actually got into the black after losing money in past years. A lot of the credit for the recent success of Ridgeway's food program goes to its new kitchen and cook. For sure, local food definitely did not dominate the Ridgeway menu during the school year. After all, the school spent around $2,000 on local foods, out of an approximately $8,500 budget. But school officials see this initial foray into homegrown cafeteria food as a good first step. Local sustainable foods were served to the kids on a consistent basis, and the school was able to forge some important links with the local farming community. Ridgeway has also made important strides in integrating the philosophy of local food throughout the school, from the cafeteria to the classrooms to a new student garden out back. School officials are also learning what challenges they will need to overcome if Farm to School is to graduate from being a one-year experiment to a cafeteria constant. Tight budgets, out-of-date federal nutrition guidelines, and seasonality are a few of those challenges. Perhaps the biggest hurdle is actually getting the food from various farms to the kitchen in an efficient and consistent manner. During the 2009-2010 school year, Ridgeway handled the transportation issue with the help of a government grant and the foraging skills of Land Stewardship Project organizer Caroline Van Shake. But such a service will not always be available, making it clear a more sustainable farm-to-school transportation system is needed in the long term. Ridgeway School Director Jody Danceberg recently sat down to talk with me about why the school has gone to the extra trouble of sourcing food from local farms. She also shared some of her thoughts on how farm-to-school challenges can be overcome. Well, there was the interest on the part of a number of staff, parents, community members, board members to to try and, and take that next step. I mean, they felt that this school has a long and strong history of community ties and involvement. Our community has stepped forward and helped us out as we've expanded the building through, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars of donated labor and materials. In some ways, you could look at it as a way of giving back to the community to the degree that we can support the local farm economy um, and, and farm processing economy with some local purchases. And we knew that we had a steep learning curve with um, just getting a food service going, and we're very concerned about costs. We, our food service program had historically lost money. We, we lost four to anywhere from four to $8,000 a year on our food service program previously. Basically, the cost that 
we were charged meals by the our resident district was what we charged our families meals and we ate the cost of um, so to speak <laughs> of delivery and service of those meals so we knew that this new on-site food service program couldn't lose any more money than we were already losing and that was kind of our first test so we were you know kind of wanted to go in slowly and that's where the the University of Minnesota grant really helped out but the long-term goal, and this goes back to some strategic planning that our board did um, probably three, four years ago, was to move us in that direction. You know, not only to be able to prepare food on site, which meant having a, you know, a certified kitchen, but to then work towards um, establishing connections within the local farming communities to source at least some of that food locally. You know, knowing that as a small school with a very tight budget you know, we were going to have to pay a lot of attention to cost. But, you know, once this grant runs out and you kind of have to make this pay its own way, I mean, what's the future as far as that, as far as making it so you can you can, you can justify that extra expense of local food sometimes? I think we'll, the reality is we'll have to probably continue to look for ways to maybe subsidize some of those costs as they are higher. But one of the things that we found since switching over to this new system is that we actually are now breaking even to making a profit on our food service. So we took what was, you know, a four to $8,000 loss in our program, which, and that money came directly out of, you know, the money we have for educational materials, staff, teachers, and brought that up to zero. So that's helped, given a very tight budget situation, given state cutbacks and that kind of thing, to kind of the overall finances of the school. As we can continue to make our food service program more profitable in that more students are eating meals, which is one of the biggest reasons we've we've done better, then we can afford to, to, to direct some of those funds into, you know, possibly more expensive foods that's locally produced. We are producing foods for a neighboring parochial school as well. We're producing lunches for them three days a week. And that's helped us as far as the profitability of our food service program by increasing the number of meals that, that we're serving. So hopefully, as, as our program becomes more efficient and cost-effective overall, um, and, and hopefully gets more and more in the black, we can afford then to do some of our own purchasing just out of our general budget yeah. for, those, um, for those items. Uh, it must be just in a small community like this, I mean, for some of the kids' parents to be providing the food and for the other kids to know a lot of these farmers and to drive by these farms and to know that that food's coming from there, that's such a big shift even from generally what the situation is in farming areas where you know where that food's coming from. I mean, that's a huge, that must be, as part of, you know, you're a community school, quote-unquote, so that must be a huge part of that community mission. Yeah, it really is, and it you can just see the kids' faces light up when they say, that's from my dad's farm, you know, that cabbage or, or whatever. And so hopefully, you know, as, um, as that grows, we can expand the number of families who can be providing us foods. So, you know, we're lucky enough to have uh, one family that, you know, runs a large organic fruit and vegetable operation whose kids go to school here. I'd like to see us be able to maybe purchase some meat products from from families that, you know, either have a beef herd or, you know, a hamburger from from a sideline on their dairy operation and help support more of those in that way. And the local processors as well that we can support through 
through doing that. But it does make a difference, I think, in the attitudes of the other kids when they know, you know, this is my buddy Jasper's dad's cabbage that I'm eating. You know, that you can see the difference in, in their interest in the food and, and how they look at giving it a try and, and yeah. enjoying it and sharing that story with their friends and their families. And we certainly have tried to feature those um, items when we have larger community events as well. So we're kind of getting the word out, you know, through newsletters, through community events, through kids, yeah. to, to the, the families, the, the parents and grandparents, that this is something that's a priority for our school. And so this first year has just, has really been a big learning year as far as just kind of the menu planning and you know there's the whole bureaucracy on the side of USDA school lunch and school meals programs that we've had to pay attention to and get that system up and running and so I feel like we're landing with both feet on the ground and, and coming out in the black. Hopefully the sky's the limit is what we can do as we go forward. I mean it's going to be a slow process. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the barriers out there to doing this both from, I know, through the, I guess it's the USDA requirements for school lunches, uh, but maybe any other barriers that are out there keeping schools like yours from doing more of this? Well, on the USDA side, the the meal requirements um, that are currently exist for what has to be in a reimbursable meal, and, and meaning, you know, we get reimbursed a couple bucks per meal, whether they're free, reduced, or not. So there's a base reimbursement, and then we get reimbursed more if, if it's a free free lunch or a reduced, reduced lunch. And that money is critical to our overall budget with the food service program. So we obviously have to file the guidelines in a very strict standpoint. The way these guidelines are set up, um, there's a heavy, heavy valuing of grains, in the guidelines that doesn't kind of look at, at the role grains play kind of in the overall diet in that they're a carbohydrate. And so vegetables like potatoes and like corn that really are mostly carbohydrates in the function they play in our um, nutritional system are counted as vegetables and not as carbohydrates and or grains. And so We've found as we've tried to do menu planning in a way where we are trying to, say, give non-breaded foods, potentially then it could be a locally raised maybe meat product, that we are challenged to meet the requirements for grains in the course of doing that. Or if you want to include, you know, kind of the old-fashioned meat and potatoes um, meal, which a lot of our kids like, um, you're having to put bread on top of mashed potatoes on top of corn in a meal, and, and uh, you, you've got a meal that has got a lot of carbohydrates in it. So that's something that I think, you know, on the federal level is something that there needs to be some changes is looked at. Um, and, and I guess the other biggest barrier is just outright costs. I mean, we are on a very tight budget and most of the foods that we've been able to offer to the kids that are locally raised we wouldn't have been able to offer without the grant from the University of Minnesota. And I just think that some creative uh, foresight on the part of say state or even maybe local legislators, bureaucrats, um, agency people the value of, of dollars spent by institutions like schools directly purchasing local goods and having them processed locally has such a ripple effect 
that I'd, I'd hope that there would be more um, foresight in that area and that there could be more funds that could be channeled to support that. Uh, we still get more foods than I would like, you know, off the truck and in a very pre-processed manner. Uh, labor is the other thing that has pushed food service programs in, in public schools into, um, you know, not only processed meats, but processed fruits and vegetables as well. I mean, labor costs are high. People are looking for any way they can to to hold those down. And the reality is, you know, that's an obstacle that we deal with as well. So the the way we've worked at addressing that is to get community volunteers to come in and assist with some of the higher labor, whether it's snapping beans, cutting up apples, those kinds of things to assist with those activities that are higher labor that we could not afford. If you were going to give advice to someone else in your position was going to look into this in any way, you know, on any level, what what advice would you give, I guess, to kind of maybe for them to avoid some pitfalls maybe you, you guys ran into or, or whatever? I think some of the critical things have been having, um, we had a pretty active food service committee going because we were trying to plan a kitchen and get a food service program going. So this was kind of one more thing we took on. But I think it needs to be something where there's buy-in from the administration, from the the food service staff, and from at least some staff and parents. And then if you can put a kind of support group together that can can kind of work together on some of the logistics, I think that's really important. And the other piece that was critical in this being successful was having someone, in this case, we were able to afford that person through the grant that was out actually sourcing, securing, and coordinating the delivery of the actual food to the school. I mean, I think in most cases, uh, school administrators and school food service staff don't have the time to take that extra piece on. They have time to place their order with one or two food service vendors. And again, with labor being such a factor, you know, making multiple calls and that kind of stuff. But, you know, a good active committee that was, was well organized could take that on in theory. I mean, we were lucky to be able to get the grant resources to have a little bit of, you know, stipend of time to do that. But um, I think having a couple people that are really dedicated to it and they're willing to kind of go the extra mile and help help do that legwork is going to be critical to to making it happen. For more on Ridgeway's Farm to School program, see the Spring 2010 Land Stewardship Letter at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. Or you can also call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.